Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You'll find it at globalnews.ca. The headline is, These Afghans Supported Canada's Military Mission. Now they have nowhere to go. And the story begins this way. Hundreds of Afghans and their families who supported Canada's military mission to Afghanistan have been forced to leave their Kabul safe houses, where they've been hiding for months, afraid they could be targeted by the Taliban. The safe houses, apartments and hotel rooms scattered across the Afghan capital, were organized by Canadian veterans and paid for with private donations, but money and time have just run out. Today, we've had to essentially evict everybody that we've been keeping in safe houses since July, said Amanda, and I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, Matayonge, a Canadian veteran and volunteer with Aman Lara, the NGO managing the safe houses. Here's another quote from this lady. These people potentially could be harmed very needlessly because our government is not moving fast enough to help them. And that's the sad truth. And I believe it was Justin Trudeau who said words to this effect. The interpreters were there for us, so we're going to be there for them. Really? Where are you, Mr. Trudeau? Where is your government? Where is the support? We've heard the interpreters tell us what's going to happen to them if they're caught by the Taliban. One of the interpreters is Sajid Kazemi. We knew him as Left Behind Alex when we first started speaking with uh, Sajid when he was still in uh, Afghanistan. He's not now. He was able to get out of Afghanistan. He did it on his own, of his own volition. He's in the United States. He worked with Canadian troops, supposed to be coming to Canada, but the Canadian government's not communicating with him at all. How are you, Sajid? Hey, how's it going, Roy? Well, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Another day. Just, uh, yeah, working as a normal citizen here in the United States. Yeah. They're taking care of you? Yeah, they take care of me, but um, my biggest dream was to come to Canada and join the let's say the people who I knew before. I still I'm I'm still in touch with them, and I feel sorry I couldn't get there, but it's, it's I mean safe here. Uh, my my intention is still to come to Canada. Well, we want you here, and uh, and you and you should be here. And the federal government is doing nothing about it. We're supposed to also, by the way be speaking with Major General Dean Milner. We haven't been able to connect with the general, but we'll keep speaking with Sajad because he knows this so very well. Uh, Sajad, these, uh, the safe houses in Kabul, they were so critically important to the people, the Afghans, such as yourself, who worked with the Canadian government, the Canadian military, who supported our efforts over in Afghanistan during the war. What are your concerns for those people who have now been removed from those safe houses. What are your concerns for them? We have the general. Well, um, it's really, really dangerous right now because I found out a couple of days ago, I got a hold of my relatives and a couple of friends. They're back in Kabul. Uh, they share some news about what's going on these days. So the Taliban fighters, they're searching every house. They're they want to find the former military personnel plus those who aided uh, the ISAF and NATO. Uh, let's say they're the ones, included the interpreters, 
their lives are in constant danger as they were before in danger, you know. Uh, right now, it's even more critical and it's even more dangerous because the Taliban, they're going to torture them to death. And I got this information just a couple of days ago. And I'm not, like, just saying it. I found out about it. I talked about it. They're really concerned. They're really worried about their um, themselves and their families. There should be a way out for them. So another thing about the safe houses, if they're going to be closed, everything is going to be done. I mean, every single one of those uh, people who aided Canadian, uh, let's say, troops in Afghanistan, killed without any hesitation. Yeah, we were told that by a former colleague of yours uh, who was on this program several times. Major General Dean Milner is with us now, the uh, former commanding officer, final commanding officer of the Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan. General Milner, thank you for joining us. What is your reaction to response to the fact that the safe houses have now been closed and the people who were being protected there, who are being sought by the Taliban, are now on their own? Well, it's a... so it's great to talk to you right off the bat. It's uh, it's an awful situation. It's extremely, extremely disappointing for uh, you know for a Canadian amongst many others that served over there and served with these great Afghans and and uh, you know any of the interpreters, including the the young fellow speaking to us on on the news. It's it's a very very disappointing situation, and it just it should not be happening. We've run out of money. We've had to close that safe house. And uh, we know that the, the Taliban are, are still looking for those that work for us and other Western nations. It's just, it's just an absolutely awful situation. And then you have that on top. You've got ISIS-K now, a hor- horrific terrorist organization that is, um, you know, I mean, they're gaining capabilities across the country. Um, so it, it's just, it's not a good situation, and, and we've got to work harder, and this, this government's got to get going uh, to, to get these interpreters out. Mm-hmm. It's, not about, uh, it's not about photo ops and uh, clever, cleverly written phrases anymore. No. Uh, we're going to stay in touch and, uh, and get back with you, Sajjad. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm concerned about you and your family. Thank you for the time. In general, I know you're extremely busy, and uh, thank you for joining us. Yes. No, it, it's, it's, uh, and thank you, Roy. And, and I can just say that we need some leadership from this uh, country. We need uh, yeah. them to take a little bit of risk to speed up the process to get these Afghans the, the paperwork they need to get out. We're, we're flying Afghans out here shortly, but we just don't have money to, to move out much more than maybe 300 uh, uh, in one go. And then uh, we just don't know what's after that. So here's a quote that I I want you to have a listen to. Our population has become so large, the Earth cannot cope. There are now more than 7 billion, 800 million people on planet Earth. It took until the early 1800s for the world population to reach 1 billion. Now we add a billion every 12 to 15 years, and that has consequences. Not a great deal has been said, I think, in recent years about the issue of global population, but it's being talked about. And there's an organization based in the UK, in London. Their name is populationmatters.org, populationmatters.org. They're in Glasgow for for COP26. Robin Maynard is a member of uh, Population 
matters, and he joins us from Glasgow. Robin, thank you very much for the time. What kind of day has it been at COP? Hi, Roy. Well, it's been a pretty wet day here in, in Glasgow, good old Scotland. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, for your listeners, it's one of those great busy conferences. There's hundreds, thousands of people milling around. There's, there's a big exhibition centre with lots of pavilions for governments, for corporations, a few NGOs, and a lot of people marching outside, particularly young people asking for change. So it's, it's both sort of exciting and frustrating in equal measure. There have been some good announcements around trying to end and reverse deforestation. That's something of great issue to your listeners in Canada, I would guess, and also cut back on methane. But then if you're Greta Thunberg, you'd say there's an awful lot of blah, blah, blah and greenwash going on too. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, Robin, we have to hope, don't we? <laughs> I deal with them here. Uh, population matters. The message of COP26, as I understand it, is that the global population at this moment is greater than the Earth can cope with. Talk to us about that, please. Well, yes. I mean, we've got about 7.8 billion people and, and counting on the planet currently. That's pretty much doubled over my lifetime. I was born right at the end of the 1950s. Uh, we're set to add another 2 billion, whatever happens really by the middle to the end of the century. And we can see that the Earth and its ecosystems is creaking at the seams with our present numbers, and particularly the consumption of a good number of us in the richer developed world. And I'd include Canada and the UK in that, in that bracket. So we have to address our consumption. But we're also seeing that former countries, you know, which were regarded as poorer countries, and they're not anymore, like China and India, which have had very big population growth too, are now having big consumer consumption growth. They're catching up. And of course, you know, millions of people in the world deserve better, richer lives. But if they do, and if they follow our example, then the earth will really be in trouble. So we somehow have to balance ourselves. We have to manage down our consumption in the rich developed world, allow poorer people to you know, come up a bit. But we also have to look at our numbers and particularly actually the numbers, the size of our families in the rich developed countries, because each one of us, certainly in the UK, is worth about the footprint of 16 people in the, in the Sahel across that dry belt of, of Africa, you know, uh, Chad, Mali, Niger, those countries. Mm -hmm. When we talk about uh, the size of families or the responsibility we have as far as population growth is concerned, that's always an emotional issue. It's one that uh, people have very strong views on. How do you deal that? How do, what's, how do you make the argument that, uh, yes, and sustaining yes. argument, that we cannot continue to add a billion people every 12 to 15 years? Well, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a very difficult subject and it's a controversial subject. There have been some bad examples of population control in the past in China and India. We, we deplore those. We don't give any countenance to those at all. This is about giving people choice. And of course, those of us who are fortunate to live in countries where safe, modern family planning is available can choose how many kids we have, when we have them, how we space them. But for over... 270 million women, young women in the world, particularly in the less developed world, that uh, choice, those rights over their own bodies and their own fertility and access to modern family planning isn't there. And it, and it should and it could be, and it wouldn't cost a great deal to provide it. So we talk about choice, we talk about rights, and we talk about responsibility for those of us 
with those choices and those rights available to us. Mm -hmm. I, I imagine most people, when they hear the number, the you know, 7 billion, 800 million people on the planet, they might say, hey, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of, uh, a lot of stress on, on, our, on our ecosystem, on, our, uh, on, on our, just our delivery systems. You know, if once we produce something to get it around the world, we're seeing it now with the supply chain issues. But I also looked at something else where I think people would would respond to, and I'll ask you as well where you get the statistics. But you, you, one of the headlines in your in your in, in what I downloaded from your website, wild vertebrate animal populations have halved in the period the human population has doubled. Speak to that, please. And where do you get the stats? Yeah, we get the stats from a range of sources. I mean, they're all published, and you can find them on our website. I mean, that, some of that is from the World Wild uh, Worldwide Fund for Nature. Some's from the UN. There's a very uh, good um, academic called Vaclav Smil who's done some of the calculations of, you know, what was the amount of, of life of animals with a backbone on the planet 10,000 years ago compared to today. And there are some pretty stunning figures there. So, you know, 10,000 years ago, about 1% of, of uh, animals with a backbone on the planet was us and whatever we, you know, animals we domesticated and 99% was wild. It's now pretty much exactly reversed. And a huge amount of that is our livestock. So about 67% of, of that 99% of our, our, our um, burden on the planet is our pigs, poultry, uh, cattle. Um, I mean, one of the figures which stunned me was that there are more chickens in Europe than there are wild birds. So we have a big impact in terms of how we ourselves sit and stand on the planet, but also what we eat, what we feed upon, what we have domesticated and chosen uh, to become the sort of animals of choice for our for our use. So there's some pretty heavy impacts in that place. And, and wildlife is really under pressure, particularly from the expansion of agriculture. And agriculture is expanding because there are more mouths to feed. And again, one of the statistics comes from the World Resources Institute is that we have a food gap of about 56% in terms of what we're going to need to feed those 2 billion extra people coming on the planet over the next you know, 30 to 50 years. So we have some real challenges and, and we, are, we are really putting pressure on the planet, which is why you know, this great conference here in Glasgow is going on about climate change. But we need to be talking about the loss of wildlife as well. And I, I speak with no great, uh, you know, privilege other than to say that in the UK, despite, you know, having David Attenborough as one of the great broadcasters on wildlife in the world, our own wildlife is very, very depleted. We're one of the most nature poor countries in the world, certainly in Europe. So we, yeah. we, we speak from hard examples rather than any great moral high ground, I can promise you. Too many members of the royal family with shotguns. <laughs> well, they're largely shooting domesticated animals, which are pheasants, which are uh, they take up a fair bit of space, but they're sort of flying chickens, to be honest. <laughs> flying chickens. Uh, are, at COP, do you find, and you, you've told us, um, given us an idea of the size of the, uh, the attendance and the delegations. We know the international delegations are there. Governments are there and public relations people are writing speeches uh, at a furious pace. Are you, do you have an audience? To pe are people listening to your message? There are a few, and, and they, they tend to be actually people from outside of the UK. So we have partners in Kenya, uh, in Uganda, parts of Latin America, actually in the States too, right. uh, and in North America. Okay. 
uh, but they tend to be people outside of Europe and they tend to be people outside of the, the developed world because those people are very awkward about talking about population because the majority of population growth <laughs> is in the global south. But Robin. people in the global south understand this and say, yeah, we have to talk about this. It's impacting upon us now. A lot of debate, a lot of talk, a lot of questions about the Canadian flag and uh, flying it and then lowering it, returning it to full mast and lowering it to half mast on Remembrance Day. Global News carried this story. Canadian flag will return to full mast after Remembrance Day ministers. So let me just read you a few lines. The Canadian flag will return to full mast after Remembrance Day on November the 11th, marking the end of the longest period in Canadian history that the flag has been at half mast. The flag will be raised at the Peace Tower in Ottawa and on all Government of Canada buildings and establishments across the country at sunset on November 7th, so tomorrow, and then lowered again at sunrise on November the 8th to mark Indigenous Veterans Day. This is according to government ministers. From there, it will return to full mast. Uh, quote, moving forward, the national flag of Canada will be half-masted to mark the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation every September 30th, end quote. That's from Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Canada, Mark Miller, and Minister of Canadian Heritage, Pablo Rodriguez, in a statement they made. Um, the news comes after the Assembly of First Nations requested on Friday that the government attach to all federal buildings, as well as the Peace Tower, the orange flag that reads, Every Child Matters, and has been used to commemorate Indigenous children lost at residential schools. The government did not address the request in its statement, but Global News has reached out for comment and has not yet received a response. That's from the uh, news story that ran earlier. So let's talk a bit about the flag. Let's talk a bit about the significance of Remembrance Day, the importance of that date. And I, uh, I just, here we go again. This thing just, this, this thing, this thing being the computer, does not like me. But I tweeted out something yesterday, just a few words. And it was after I'd come in and, and seen what I'm going to describe here. Here's what I tweeted. Saw people taking a quick glance at the poppy box and passing it by. 100th anniversary of the poppy as Remembrance Day symbol. Wear one, please. Commemorate the people who really did fight and die for your life and your freedoms and freedoms of your family. That's at the Roy Green Show. There have been 889 likes, 890 now, 267 retweets, and 85 comments, which I haven't read yet. That clearly, I mean, it really reaches and touches people as it should. Remembrance Day. Mark Birchall is uh, the co-founder and co-national organizer of the National Walk for Veterans. We've talked to Mark on this program many times. How are you, Mark? I'm very good, thank you, Roy, and thank you for having uh, Terry and I on your show today. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you here. Terry Kelly wrote and performed what has quickly become the nationally adopted tribute to Veterans and Remembrance Day, A Pittance of Time. How are you, Terry? I'm well, Roy. Great to be here. A great set of pipes, man. Whether you're talking or singing, you sound good. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark, for a th- quick thought from you, and, and how do you think it's resonating in the uh, veterans community that an agreement was reached as far as flying the flag is concerned and then lowering it to half-mast on Remembrance Day? We had to get that done. Well, you know what? I'm so pleased that actually that uh, prior to Remembrance Day, and, and when I say Remembrance Day, I mean 
both Remembrance Day on November 11th and Indigenous Veterans Day on November 8th. I'm so pleased that the government and the Assembly of First Nations were able to come to uh, a resolve to the issue of the flags. And certainly, uh, you know, there's two sets of tragedies that have occurred. One is the uh, finding of uh, unmarked graves in the residential schools, and the other is the uh, sacrifices that our veterans have made. And both of these things are very important. So, you know what, uh, I, I think that... Um, Canada comes together on Remembrance Day to remember those who have fallen, those who have sacrificed, and by that I mean veterans, all veterans, all military serving, and their families. And uh, certainly, you know what, we, we should uh, pay tribute to our veterans every day of the year, but certainly on that one day, yeah. uh, on Remembrance Day. Yeah, no question. I uh, was, I'm always dismayed when I see, and uh, this is directed at you, Terry, I'm always dismayed when I see people walk by the poppy boxes, whether they're at a supermarket or, you know, whether a veteran is standing outside somewhere, and they take a look, sort of a furtive glance, some of them, and then they keep on marching by. And I've heard people say, well, we don't carry money anymore. We only have a credit card. Nobody's asking you for money. It's a voluntary donation. If you don't have any money, then you can take a poppy and you can wear it. Nobody's telling you you can't. And, and... And, and to see this re- level of response to, to this tweet that I just, you know, wrote very quickly, speaks to the significantly important nature of Remembrance Day because there are so many, so many families in this country have a direct connection to the military. So many families can trace family members who fought in the Second World War, who fought in the First World War, who fought in Korea, who fought in Afghanistan, who were involved in military um, procedures and military um, uh, exercises at different times in in different parts of the world. So many people have connections. So, Terry, just please um, comment on that and then remind us, please, of the moment... And this is so important, and I, 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 I love it when you do this because it speaks to, it speaks to a dad and speaks to a little girl. Remind us of the moment that, 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 that uh, inspired you to write A Pittance of Time. Well, you know, Roy, we've talked about this before, and I could tell this over and over again. See, what you're just referring to, uh, people walking by the poppy box, all that jazz, um, A Pittance of Time was born of this little girl who I refer to as a hero in her own right and who inspired working on her dad uh, had the courage to say to her dad, a big man, Daddy, that was, that was embarrassing. You were supposed to be quiet during that time. And for people who haven't heard this story, um, I was in a drugstore quickly with my wife on November 11th. We were supposed to go to the Senate half. Uh, we were delayed um, because of traffic and so on. But the manager of the store, um, one minute to 11, said, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, join my staff and me for two minutes of silence for our veterans and our serving military. And I thought, wow, you know, stopping the, stopping the flow of commerce at a big joint like this, you know. So, so but the thing is that uh, that little girl, when she said that to her dad, that's where that song was born. And, it, and for a few days afterwards, I was talking to my wife, and I, I said, well, I can't believe you did that, you know. And she said, Terry, uh, 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 Roy, we're all, 
if we're all smart, we listen to what our wives say. She said, Terry, you're a storyteller. You're a songwriter. Stop complaining and write a song or something, would you? No, <laughs> so. that's amazing. Uh, we're going we're gonna to play uh, a little bit of the song in just a minute. Uh, and I have to take a break first, but uh, you know, you know, when you talk about that, that that dad with the little girl, thank God that little girl, you know, took him to a task right there. Um, but I remember I used to uh, host a, a program. It was my idea to to uh, do a broadcast from nine a.m. to noon in Hamilton on Remembrance Day. Do it outside at the cenotaph, regardless of the weather. So we'd be there for three hours, and veterans would be there. We would c- carry the full eleventh-hour um, ceremony, and it was, you know, it was inspiring. And 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 each year there'd be fewer and fewer of the veterans. We we know how that goes. And then we'd take some phone calls toward the end of uh, end of the uh, the program. And I remember a student calling in, and she said, and I my apologies to the folks at McMaster University who respect Remembrance Day. But she said that she was a student at, at McMaster, and uh, 11 o'clock came around on November the 11th, and the professor just kept on talking. And one of the students said, sir, uh, it's 11 o'clock on November the 11th, two minutes of silence. We should be respectful. And the professor turned around and said, don't have time for that. Do it on your own time later. Well, the response to that was just Amazing. So many people made it a point to state that, yes, they um, support and they, they honor Remembrance Day. And then a police officer called in, Ontario Provincial Police. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Hamilton area, there's a bridge that, go, that, that goes from Hamilton across the bay on, to Burlington, Ontario, the Skyway Bridge. And it's very busy. They've twinned it. a lot of traffic, as you can imagine. And the police officer said, we saw a lot of cars on the side of the road, on the highway, on the shoulder. He said, so we had to find out what's going on here because, you know, you can't just pull over on the side of the road on the highway. So he said, we, we, we stopped the car and got out and asked the first guy. And he said, I'm sitting here for two minutes quietly observing Remembrance Day. And they heard that again and again and again. That's what people are doing. That's what it means. It means so much. Yeah, there are some, there are moments, you know, Terry and, and Mark, Mark Birchall, Terry Kelly with me. There are, there are some moments where, and something is done and something happens spontaneous often, that it really relates and really connects. And that song, every time I hear it, I think of my dad, who was 19 at uh, Dunkirk. Wow. Yeah, and he didn't get, a, didn't get back to England. He was captured. And, you know, it, it just touches. And I, I know it touches so many people. Terry, when you hear it, what are you feeling now? Uh, gra- gratitude, first of all. I mean, uh, you know, we, we write, we, when you're an artist, you write songs, you make videos. And one of the things about this, uh, Roy, is that it, uh, it covers all demographics. Like five-year-old kids go quiet when this comes on. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't plan it. It's just, it happened that, that way. Happens. It was... So it's gratitude, and I'm I'm also grateful that the message is renewed every year. It's like a, you know, it's an annual thing that happens. Yeah. And when you were talking about that bridge, when the police officers, this we're going into the second year of a five-year plan to have the whole country stop. 
And this year, we've got more traction. Already we've got more uh, people picking up on it. And so those boxes, those poppy boxes, uh, will be a little busier as time goes on, I believe. And we've got a big grocery store chain down here just came on board, and we hope to have a bunch of them in the coming year. So all, all stores, all places, the road. And I'll just be quicker, but a pittance of time is to say, take 15 seconds if you can. If you can do two minutes, do it. Uh, Whatever in your life allows it, because there's traffic, because there's whatever going on, can't make it to the cenotaph, you don't have to go to the cenotaph. Stop and make it, bring it to your heart. Why are you grateful for being a Canadian? Mm -hmm. Uh, What does freedom mean to you? Are you free? Yes, you are. So that's kind of... We're, we're, we're trying to bring it home and make it personal for people. Yeah. Uh, what's your website? My, uh, so the best place to go for this is uh, on Facebook, my, my Facebook page, Operation A Pittance of Time. Okay. And we have people posting all kinds of stuff up there. We're asking people, what are they going to do for Remembrance Day? Okay. What did they do after it's over? There, there, there are people posting things about grandparents. Or get, put something about your dad, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, uh, he died when I was 12, so I never had the opportunity to really talk to him about what he experienced. But I know he was there. I have the photographs, and I have the um, have the war records, and I have the telegrams that were sent by the war ministry to my grandparents telling them. The first oh. telegram said, your son is missing in action. That doesn't mean he's dead. The second telegram said, we can confirm he's a prisoner of war. Well, he wasn't a prisoner of war for very long because he escaped. And the only thing he ever said to me about it when I was a little kid was, we didn't like it, so we left. (laughs) (laughs) That's an exact quote. We didn't like it, so we left. Mark, uh, just remind us, please, about, um, about the Veterans Walk. About the Canadian Walk for Veterans? Yeah, the National Walk for Veterans. Yeah, okay, great. Well, we started the Canadian Walk for Veterans five years ago in uh, one city, Vancouver, at Central Park, and uh, it just occurred to us at that time that uh, we had such a tremendous response by the media and people. We had uh, over 150 people come out. We just thought, you know what, this really belongs to Canada, not just Vancouver. So the next year we rolled it out coast to coast in eight cities and then 14 cities, and then when COVID-19 came along, we had to go virtual, and we had amazing response. That was last year. We had 100 and, or, uh, walkers in 120 cities, and this year we had walkers in 152 cities. So next year we're back with in-person walks right across the country. And I, I would like to say that uh, this year, uh, every year, we donate the net proceeds. You know, really the Walk for Veterans is about recognition. But we take the opportunity to raise money from the uh, modest uh, registration fees and sponsorships. And this year, our net proceeds went to an organization called No Stone Left Alone. And I had the honor to be at one of their ceremonies the other day where they had 250 children from schools around New Westminster, B.C. come out and lay poppies on the headstones of veterans. Just wonderful. It was extraordinary. What's the website? www.canadianwalkforveterans.com and uh, you can learn all about the Canadian Walk for Veterans and where our proceeds go and the support and watch for next year because uh, next year around the weekend of 25th, 26th is when we'll be holding next year's Canadian Walk for Veterans coast to coast across the country. 
Mark Birchall, Terry Kelly, there's a story I wanted to share with you, but I, we just ran out of time. So you're going to have to listen to the rest of the show if you want to hear it. Okay. By the way, Mark, you yeah. can stop saying WWW now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Oh, Mark's, Mark's a little, uh, what do you call it, long in the tooth there. Oh, so am oh, I. Sorry. Okay. All right, guys. <laughs> What's going on in friendly Manitoba? Conflict and contradictory claims of victory in recent days. Between two progressive conservative party challengers to succeed Brian Pallister as premier of the province, Heather Stephenson and Shelley Glover both claim to have won the PC party leadership race with the official party vote count going to uh, Ms. Stephenson by some 363 votes. Richard Cloutier joins me. He is my Chorus Radio colleague, co-host of the news on 680 CJOB Winnipeg, and senior reporter for Global News. So uh, these two people have been at least decidedly unfriendly in friendly Manitoba. Richard, what's going on? Well, somewhat. Heather Stephenson is premier of Manitoba. Without a doubt, she is Premier of Manitoba. The issue goes to the leadership of the party. And the problem there, Roy, is that one vote, one party system. And this dates back to the fact that this was really done in a hurry. And the problem with it being done in a big hurry like this is that you get a sensation from a variety of uh, sources here that um, ballots weren't mailed out in time, that then there was pick-up-the-ballot process. Then there were other issues um, regarding party infighting. Uh, let's face it, uh, Heather Stephenson, uh, she owes uh, a lot of her background to what we would call former Gary Philman supporters. Now, Philman was our premier back in the late 1990s. His wife, Janice Philman, is the lieutenant governor of Manitoba, Versus um, Glover, who served in cabinet for Stephen Harper. And uh, there are still a lot of kind of Harper conservatives that uh, were involved in her campaign. So from that way, it has been very nasty. And this will end up, and it has ended up in court. But I do not see Heather Stephenson not remaining premier of Manitoba. You know, I guess we ask ourselves, given the political parties have a way of doing things, and they've worked out the way to do things, over a long period of time, whether it's leadership succession or whether whatever they're doing, running an election campaign, they've generally worked out a procedure that's going to work for them and they've proven it. So we, we ask yourself, how does this happen? Was it, so Premier Stephenson was the choice of the party and uh, Ms. Glover not. But I, I don't know how they I mean, why are they fighting? Well, essentially, Shelley Glover believes, and there was an application to the Court of Queen's Bench and there, there were supposed to be 1,645 total votes cast. Right. 501 fewer ballots than the 16,546 the party said were cast last Saturday. Therein lies the problem, is that there were real problems in the days leading up to this. We did a variety of stories that uh, ballots weren't reaching delegates, that they had to drive to vote. And that's what's going to be answered by the Court of Queen's bench, whether or not it has jurisdiction here. Um, as far as Elections Canada is concerned, they can, or Elections Manitoba, they can order a recount uh, during a general election. But on party status, uh, the judge so far has said he can order uh, that there be a review. But uh, the constitutional scholars that I've talked to said 
Uh, Heather Stephenson is the premier, and unless she agrees that there were some problems with uh, with the vote, um, this uh, this may end up being more of a political issue than it is a court issue. Yeah. So the party's party's not doing itself any favors. How are Manitobans? No. How are Manitobans responding to this? Uh, negatively towards Shelley Glover because she was out on Thursday saying that she should be the first woman premier of Manitoba, the first Métis premier of Manitoba. Glover's got an edge, and I can understand completely and totally why she is upset here. But uh, so in that way, there's been a bit of a backlash uh, from some progressive conservative circles. Others have said, you know what, this is, uh, if they can't run, if the conservatives, progressive conservatives can't run a leadership, how can they continue running the province? Heather Stephenson has two years to turn the ship around. Brian Pallister put the party um, after uh, two back-to-back majority governments. Uh, COVID and a whole variety of other matters uh, put the party in the dumps, especially in Winnipeg. Right. So Heather Stephenson has 18 months, two years to turn this around. Otherwise, uh, the NDP will regain power here in the province. Richard, always good talking to you. Thank you so much. I'm surprised that this happened, but I can see it happening elsewhere, maybe federally. That would be entertaining. Uh, another, another couple of weeks to go in this one. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. Thank you.